Good evening, this is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studio on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. As we go to air, the state legislature is in session and wading through an agenda of more than 100 proposed bills that cover everything from raffling off sturgeon to new restrictions on voting. The new voting regulations would enact new restrictions on absentee ballots, ballot boxes, and the powers of the Elections Commission. Governor Tony Evers has pledged to veto these measures. That's according to the Associated Press. In a very quick response to the settlement between a gun manufacturer and the families of the victims of the Sandy Hook tragedy, the state assembly passed additional protections for gun and ammunition manufacturers. The measure would protect firearms makers from lawsuits based on their marketing strategy. The Sandy Hook case was based on the specific method used in marketing the weapon used in the killings. A Republican-sponsored measure that would break up the Milwaukee School District into eight smaller districts passed the assembly on a party-line vote. The measure was criticized by Democratic leader Greta Neubauer as an attempt to, quote, scapegoat urban schools rather than taking positive steps to address real issues facing them. The Department of Natural Resources Board has voted to kill the regulation of PFAS chemicals as proposed by the scientists of the Department of Natural Resources. Department technical staff worked on the regulations for two and a half years. Industry lobbyists led by the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce successfully convinced the board to increase the contamination standard from 20 parts per million, which was proposed by the department, to 70 parts per million. Wisconsin State Journal reports that one board member said he, quote, didn't trust the Department of Health Services because of their support of wearing masks during the pandemic. Another member said that regulating the PFAS chemicals would, quote, be biting the hand that feeds us. Wausau Mayor Katie Rosenberg said that all of the water wells in her community had contamination levels above the proposed standard. She said that local communities do not have the resources to address this problem. Fred Prain, a board member from Wausau, accused the mayor of creating, quote, hysteria and psychosis. All of the DNR board members opposed to the regulation were appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. Two Madison Alders publicly resigned from the city's panel charged with government reform. The Alders, Barbara McKinney Harrison and Nasra Wally, charged that committee chair Keith Furman engaged in, quote, unprofessional conduct and that Furman uses his power and privilege to make sure the, their, their voices are not valued or considered. Furman, an alder representing the far west side of Madison, has been a leading proponent of making the council into a full-time legislative body. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the city council accepted a three-year grant to fund the hiring of six additional police officers. The city would be required to fund one quarter of their salary in the first year and fully fund the officers by their final year, by the final year. Police Chief Sean Barnes said the grant would focus on increasing, quote, trust and legitimacy in the police, partly, uh, particularly among children and youth. One officer would be assigned to each district. 
The grant was approved by a vote of 13 in favor to 7 opposed. The Madison Common Council has again rejected a proposed housing development on the city's north side. The, the development would have provided 140 single and multifamily homes on what is now the Ramish Farm. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, Northside residents and opponents of placing F-35s at Truax Field spoke in opposition to the proposal based on their concerns about the health and safety due to high sound levels. The council voted 14 to 6 against rezoning the Ramish property, which is situated between North Sherman and Packers Avenues. While much of the council's opposition stemmed from not yet knowing the true noise levels of the coming F-35s, which are to begin arriving next year, the debate spanned a wide range of arguments. A few council members voiced support for farmland preservation in general. Others viewed the development as an opportunity for first-time homeowners. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, for her part, argued the council isn't, quote, grounded in reality if it tries to dictate the direction of each development in the city. After the second vote of a supermajority against the proposal, it is unlikely to be reintroduced to the council. The Madison School District has announced that masks will continue to be required for all students, staff, and visitors until the April 15th spring break. This goes beyond the end of the county and city mask rules, which will expire on March 1st. Madison will keep its current mask protocol in place for students, staff, and visitors inside of school buildings through spring break and will provide an update on mask guidance no later than April 15th. Those are the headlines for this evening. Now, on to the rest of the day's top stories. In 2017, then-Mayor Paul Soglin removed two monuments commemorating Confederate soldiers in a cemetery in Madison. The move caused outrage at the time. Now, almost five years later, a local attorney has filed a lawsuit against the former mayor, as well as current and former city council members, in order to have the monuments restored. Our reporter Nate Weggehaupt has the story. Some of you may unfortunately feel like you're back in school because what I'm about to do may seem like a history lesson. And if it's got a title, the title is Fake Monuments, Fake History. That's Paul Soglin in fall 2017, who is now the center of a lawsuit that alleges that the former Madison mayor violated state statutes and historic preservation rules when he ordered the removal of two historic monuments honoring Confederate soldiers. The civil lawsuit filed at the end of December last year by local attorney Todd Hunter alleges that Soglin's move to remove the monuments at Forest Hill Cemetery was, quote, rash, politically motivated, and dishonest, and a prelude to Soglin's run for governor in 2018. WORT obtained a copy of the complaint, which was filed in Dane County Circuit Court in late December 2021. It lists a litany of alleged behavior, including fraud, negligence, breach of fiduciary duty, and violation of the Wisconsin Constitution. The lawsuit also holds 22 current and former members of the Madison Common Council professionally and personally liable for their role 
role in the removing of the monument, alleging council members attempted to retroactively back up the mayor's unilateral order to desecrate a cemetery. The lawsuit was filed by Todd Hunter, a Madison attorney. According to archives of the Wisconsin State Journal, Hunter once ran for Madison mayor against Soglin in 1995, but lost by over 15,000 votes. Neither he nor Soglin returned WORT's request for comment by airtime. A substantial amount of the 87-page lawsuit focuses on the history of Confederates' rest. The monument was placed in the cemetery in 1906 to remember the 140 prisoners of the Civil War who died at Camp Randall. After the war, local resident Alice Waterman helped to keep up the cemetery. After Waterman's death in 1897, a push was made by the United Daughters of the Confederacy to place a monument honoring the dead and the work of Mrs. Waterman. The United Daughters of the Confederacy is a group of women related to Confederate veterans, who the Southern Poverty Law Center calls a neo-Confederate group. Meanwhile, the complaint argues that the Southern Poverty Law Center is itself a, quote, discredited organization, end quote accusing the group of libel for misrepresenting the United Daughters of the Confederacy. A second monument was placed on the grounds in 1981 to commemorate the family of Madison resident William Huggins, whose father fought for the Confederacy. Songlin said in a press conference in 2017 that the monuments were not erected to honor the dead, but to rewrite history. The larger monument at Madison's Forest Hill Cemetery is not a Civil War monument. It was installed over 60 years after the end of the war. It is a slab of propaganda paid for by a racist organization on public property when our city was inattentive to both the new form of slavery propagated by the donors with the black codes and to the meaning of that despicable fixture honoring slavery, sedition, and oppression. In the summer of 2017, the monuments were vandalized with the slogan, Good Night White Pride. Shortly after, then-Mayor Soglin ordered the removal of the monuments from Forest Hill. The order for removal led to outrage by Madison residents who saw the monument not as a symbol of hate, but as a tribute to the Confederate prisoners of war and the matron who cared for them. One week after the removal of the monument in August 2017, Soglin held a press conference to explain his actions. First of all, the identity of all of the soldiers is there. The graves have always been respected and remain intact. What is there is a 1931 vicious neo-Confederate monument to racism and white superiority. And the story of, its, of the history and the importance of that monument is not the Civil War, but it's the ongoing hundred years of Jim Crow laws and lies about the treason of those southern states. It wasn't until after the press conference that Soglin submitted a resolution to the city council to formally remove the monuments. Although the Landmark Commission argued that the monuments were considered historic sites, the council eventually approved the measure to remove both monuments. The lawsuit alleges violation of half a dozen state statutes concerning burial sites, and it alleges former Mayor Soglin violated Wisconsin's historic preservation laws applicable to properties that are listed on registries for protection, locally or nationally. Forest Hill Cemetery is listed on both a local registry and the National Registry of Historic Places. 
The lawsuit calls for city officials to restore the monument back to its original place at Confederate Rest and for the city to pay $25,000 to be placed in a trust to preserve the cemetery. The 1906 monument is currently held at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, which tells WORT that due to the size of the monument, displaying it is not currently an option. The 1981 monument is currently in possession of the city of Madison. Madison City Attorney Michael Haas told WORT that the city itself has not been served with the lawsuits as of yet and declined further comment. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The time is now 6.18 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A consumer advocacy group is asking state regulators to stop the construction of a 102-mile-long power line that would run from Dane County into the state of Iowa. The call comes from the Citizens Utility Board, who say that after a judge ruled last month that the line cannot run through a national wildlife refuge on the Mississippi River, the line can no longer be completed. To get a fuller view of the Citizens Utility Board's position, our producer, Nate Wegehaupt, spoke with the executive director of the nonprofit, Tom Content. I'm on the line with Tom Content, executive director of the Citizens Utility Board, about the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line. Tom, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Oh, glad to be here. So to start things off, what is happening with the Cardinal Hickory Creek line? What is the current state of that line? Well, right now it's uh, it's a confused state um, because right now there's a federal court ruling that went into effect last month um, where uh, Judge Conley in the U.S. District Court basically ruled that the, the line, which is supposed to connect Wisconsin and Iowa, can't cross the um the, the Mississippi River at the through the Mississippi River National Wildlife Refuge. Um, so it basically revoked a permit um, that that the utilities had gotten for from the Fish and Wildlife Service. So that raises big questions for uh, what this means for for customers going forward. And it's just sort of a refresher for people. Can you sort of explain the history of the Cardinal Hickory Creek line? Sure, it's been um, it's been uh, in process for uh, a good while for years now, um, and there's been there was a case at the Public Service Commission several years ago. Cub got involved in that case, and we raised questions. Our, the expert we hired raised questions at the time, saying that um, the app, utilities involved didn't do enough um, uh, analysis of some of the project alternatives, the lower cost alternatives. Um, and we thought that um, at the time, based on the record that was in front of the Public Service Commission, we didn't think the project should be approved. Um, it did get approved, but then there's been litigation uh, led by environmental a- interveners, the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation and the Driftless Area Land Conservancy, um, have been have been ta- have taken it to court and. It was this one of their lawsuits that led to this. Cub wasn't part of the lawsuit, but now that it's at this stage, we're uh, we're concerned about what it's going to mean. Um, the, the current state of the project could mean for customers. So, sort of going off that, what part of this line does the Citizens Utility Board take issue with, and what have you guys done to try and halt the construction of this line? 
Well, basically, the the concern we have now is that now that the um, now that this court ruling is is keeping it from uh, crossing the river, you end up with a kind of a bridge to nowhere problem, where or a power line uh, that can't can't meet its original stated needs. One of the goals of this power line, from the utilities perspective, was to access low cost renewable energy from Iowa and the rest of the Midwest, um, and if if you don't, if if the lines can't connect, you've got a we've got a big problem. Um, the big problem being, uh, we're stuck we're stuck paying uh, almost five hundred million dollars for uh, for a line that that doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to do. Um, so that's why we've asked the Public Service Commission to take a fresh to take a to reopen the case and take a look at what's at the judge's rule recent ruling. Um, we think construction should be halted. Um, while while this uh, and while this uh, litigation uh, is ongoing, because uh, the, the worst case scenario facing customers is hundreds of millions of dollars being paid for for a line that doesn't um, doesn't doesn't even connect to the Midwest grid. And what have been some of the issues brought up by environmental activists? Well, so the the the, the Driftless Area Land Conservancy and Wisconsin Wildlife Federation have brought up their concerns, which is more of the impact on the driftless area itself of the power line going through there, that, that, that part of um, southwest Wisconsin and the impact on uh, wildlife habitat and those, those, those kinds of things. That's. And what has the development groups building the line? What have they said? I know that, you know, we've talked about the judge saying that it can't go through the upper Mississippi River National Wildlife Refuge. Have they stated what their plans are now? They've they've, they've indicated that they have an option available to them, but they haven't really spelled out what that is. Um, And and that's our concern is that, that whatever option that is, is going to require rerouting and and would likely have significant cost impacts for customers. So we have concerns uh, about that. Um, it, they, whether they can, whether they can, um, from our vantage point, the judge's ruling was, was pretty strongly worded. But they're going there. The utilities do plan to uh, have signaled that they do plan to appeal it to a federal appeals court. So I, I bet my 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 hunch is that that's that their approach is that the litigation um, route uh, is what they think will enable this to proceed. Now, tell me about this letter that uh, Citizens Utility Board has written. What was that letter about and who was it addressed to? So we wrote a letter to the Public Service Commission um, asking for them to basically reopen this their, their review of this project in light of the new court ruling. Um, so that's that's the essence of our our letter is saying you know we don't want to see uh, customers' money um, wasted by if 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 you end up paying if words ratepayers are stuck footing the bill for a project that can't even connect to the regional grids. Um, so that that was our letter, and then just that that we submitted uh, recently, and then just yesterday the our counterpart organization in Iowa. The Iowa Office of Consumer Advocate submitted a similar filing with um, the Iowa Utilities Board, um, basically 
saying, you know, asking for more information um, because there are there are a lot of unanswered questions about where how this line gets completed, what that path would be, um, and what the cost cost impact would be um, for customers. Uh, it's a five hundred million dollar project. Um, our concern is that um, as it's originally envisioned as a regional line, um, Wisconsin customers would only have to pay 15% of the project cost um, because it would be the cost would be shared and spread across the whole Midwest. But we have concerns that that wouldn't that that the, that, that cost sharing may not may no longer be in place if it's a line that can't connect to the rest of the grid. Now, Tom, we are running up against the clock here, but I know that you are also organizing a bit of a fundraising event next week. Can you sort of very quickly tell me about that? Oh, sure. Well, we're part, um, uh, we're one of 70 or so organizations that are part of Community Shares, um, including WRT um, and, and, and many others um, in Dane County and beyond. And next week on March 1st, Community Shares is hosting its uh, what's it's one day fundraising campaign called the Big Share, um, and so it's a, basically one day of giving to a variety of community organizations. Um, at Cub, we're hoping to um, use this fundraiser to help us with our outreach efforts and our work on advocacy and uh, rate ideas for um, folks who are hard hit by high energy costs, the low income and other disadvantaged folks. So that's something we're really looking forward to uh, seeing. And there's, there are details on our website, cubwi.org, as well as uh, thebigshare.org um, for um, the March 1st. Tuesday, March 1st is the Big Share, uh, big day of giving. Um, it's an annual event, but it's something we're really excited about participating in. I've been talking with Tom Content, the executive director over at the Citizens Utility Board, about the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line. Tom, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me today. Oh, no problem. Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on Community Radio Station WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. There's a lot more coming up. Trans youth rally at the state capitol building. Madison in the 60s looks back at protests in Madison against the Vietnam War. And I'll have a look back at yesterday's ice storm and to a storm coming tomorrow, which you'll probably appreciate a bit more. So stay tuned. But first, we'll go back live to London for news from around the world from the BBC. The time is now 6.32 and 47 seconds, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. 
Last week, local high school students held a rally at the state capitol to protest a proposed series of bills that would affect transgender youth in Wisconsin. The bills would block access to medical care for trans youth, such as puberty blockers, as well as ban therapists from discussing certain topics. Last week, we spoke with Amira Pirati, the organizer of the rally. Today, WORT reporter Oliver DiPietro brings audio from the rally where they spoke with students about what brought them to the Capitol. So, as a black queer person who's also cis, it's incredibly important to me that we protect our trans siblings, particularly our black and brown trans siblings. They are the least protected demographic of our society, and the fact that this bill would deny them health care, gender-affirming health care, is unacceptable. We've heard so many stories today about people getting binders, people getting um, the hormone uh, replacements and whatnot. Like the fact that those things are suicide prevention and that this bill would have an end to those things, it doesn't make any sense. And it's really clear that the senators are just out of touch with what the needs of our people are. So it's extremely important to me that we kill this bill, which our representatives have the ability to do so, so that we can continue to show our black and brown trans siblings that their lives have inherent value. Yeah, I think that mainly um, a lot of what Amira was saying at the protest was especially talking about how we need to protect and support trans youth. But I think it's more an issue that Wisconsin legislation needs to support and protect just people in general because they're not any different from anyone else and really this is just an issue of legislation just need to be supportive of the people of Wisconsin so it's really important that this bill does not get passed because I mean number one it's going to be extremely hurtful to so many people that are just in Wisconsin and especially youth who are going through such a tremendously hard time already trying to convince so many people around them that being trans is a real thing and this bill is only going to set back all the progress that has already been made. So. I totally agree. Um, it also will drive up suicide rates and rates of bullying because people feel less comfortable in their own skin without this form of healthcare, and that can be extremely detrimental. We've seen studies of this. Um, it also puts kids who are already more at risk for all sorts of different things more at risk if you're not able to express yourself be comfortable, etc. Um, it also blocks things like puberty blockers, which are only meant to give you more time um, to figure out your identity. Okay. Um, I am part of the trans community. I use they them pronouns and I don't use any gender affirming care, but one of my close friends since fifth grade that I've known for a long time does and I really, and I have a bunch of trans friends and it's just heartbreaking that this could happen to them and that this could change their lives in that way and I just want to be for, there for them in any way I can. Uh, the notion of this bill alone is horrifying to me and many of the people in our community because the care that they receive is life-saving and taking it away is a violation of basic human right. It is despicable and we need to do everything we can to prevent it. It's really important to me because a lot of my friends are trans and I absolutely refuse to let someone take away what they need. It's horrible that they're, they'll have to go through like depression, anxiety, and puberty that they don't want and they need to be themselves and I don't want anyone to take that away. This will make them feel like they don't belong in this community 
and everyone belongs in this community and we're all needed and we're all necessary and we're all important. If you take this away from me, like my trans friends and people in general, they will feel like they do not belong and that's not okay in this society. Personally, I identify as transgender and I have a lot of friends who identify as transgender or non-binary or anywhere on the spectrum. And the effects going through the basically wrong puberty has on mental health is awful. It's something I don't want anyone to have to experience. Um, taking away the ability to change how they currently are into something they want to be and how something that'll make them more comfortable. Um, just taking that away is cruel. It's, I don't know how to, it's just awful. I can't imagine how many people are going to struggle if they pass this. And some voices there from youth at last week's Rally for uh, Trans Rights up at the State Capitol building. We thank our reporter Oliver DiPietro for that. Yesterday, the Wisconsin legislature held its 18th annual State of the Tribes Address, which gives the state's native leaders the opportunity to present the challenges and achievements of Wisconsin's tribal communities to state lawmakers. Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. From environmental issues to voting rights, Wisconsin's 2022 State of the Tribes Address tackled a number of issues the state faces this year. The annual speech, presented Tuesday by Shannon Holsey of the Stockbridge-Munsee Band of Mohican Indians, gives the state's tribal leaders a chance to highlight both the concerns and achievements of Wisconsin's tribal communities. Among other topics, Holsey spoke out against what she said were efforts to restrict Wisconsinites' voting access. Eradicating barriers to political participation for Native Americans would improve socioeconomic status, self-determination, land rights, water rights, and health care. While she never mentioned them specifically, Holsey's comments were a likely nod to more than a dozen voting and election administration bills before the Senate on Tuesday. Voting rights groups say those proposals would limit access to absentee ballots and politicize the state's election system. Republican authors of the bills argue they're essential to securing and streamlining future elections. Holsey also used the opportunity to raise concerns over a planned reroute of the Enbridge Line 5 oil pipeline. The reroute would skirt around the tribal lands of the Bad River Band in northern Wisconsin and cross through the reservation's watershed. Echoing concerns from other tribal leaders, Holsey told lawmakers the project's draft environmental impact statement fails to adequately take into account the potential environmental disruption. The pipeline crosses over 280 rivers and streams that flow indirectly into the Great Lakes waters that supply drinking water to over 40 million people. Supporters of the project see it as an economic boon for the state, attracting roughly 700 new jobs to northern Wisconsin. In her speech, Holsey also argued in favor of expanding internet access in rural Wisconsin and highlighted the successes of tribal economic development initiatives. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Native nations to the state of the atmosphere above us. 
Well, yesterday played out uh, just about as miserably as we were expecting it to. The only saving grace actually turned out to be the uh, sleet itself, which was falling out of the sky. It provided actually a fairly tractionable, grippy surface compared to what we might have got had we had just rain or drizzle freezing on contact with the ground. But we managed to keep a thick enough pad of cold air over us, generally between about three and 4,000 feet, to keep what was falling out of the sky mostly as ice grains or sleet. Uh, nevertheless, we did have uh, we did uh, manage to have a, an impressive temperature contrast between ground level and just the lower layers of the atmosphere overhead, with temperatures in the mid-morning period leaping from 15 degrees down here at ground level up to the mid-40s, just 4,000 feet or so above us. That led to enough energy buildup in that warm nose aloft there to launch those sudden, rather noisy uh, showers of sleet that swept across the area. All told, we got about a tenth of an inch of moisture down in yesterday's episode, so uh, February remains at just a paltry 25% of its normal moisture so far, and the year as a whole fares little better at 29% now. We'll get another chance to add to that tomorrow, at least in a small way, but uh, a way in which uh, most people are likely to find rather more palatable than yesterday. This will be a nice, light, fluffy snow, at least if things all go to plan, uh, something we've uh, been almost bereft of so far this winter. This coming system is visible this evening on the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage, ready to eject from the pit of an upper trough down over the Mojave Desert region. As robust as that swirl of energy looks at the moment, it will lift fairly rapidly northeastward tomorrow, and without pausing to deepen or engage the atmosphere very much, at least until it reaches the east coast around the mid-Atlantic states on Friday morning, on that trajectory across the country, its main energy is going to be holding south of us, but modeling has been showing a little bit of an inverted trough up to the north and northwest of the Passing Circulation Center, which will add uh, a little bit of convergence and lift in the air here, especially in concert with an elevated funnel boundary up about a mile uh, overhead tomorrow late afternoon and overnight. Another favorable factor will be the vertical temperature profiles through the stretch of the atmosphere where the best lifting and saturation are going to occur. Temperatures there will be generally between about 0 and 10 degrees above, which is a range in which those big, flat, five-pointed dendritic snowflakes tend to form. Winds in the lower part of the air column are going to be a little brisk at the onset of snow in the late afternoon tomorrow, which may break apart some of those flakes before they come down. But as the winds subside, especially a little bit later in the evening, I'm hoping that we might stack up a nice fluffy little snowfall, maybe two or three inches, out of what, like yesterday, will be only just a tenth of an inch of moisture. So that... Uh, liquid-to-snow ratio should make for fairly easily shoveling, I think, on Friday morning. One possible downside for the snowfall tomorrow is uh, dry air, which uh, will uh, need to be overcome initially, uh, combined with a borderline uh, lifting for saturation in areas uh, maybe just here and a little bit north of us through the state. But so far, the model precipitation production is looking fairly good for tomorrow evening. The rest of the forecast period then over the weekend will feature a slow warming, or a slow waning, I should say, of the cold air that will come in behind tomorrow evening's system. That will involve warming, of course. 
A uh, little in the way of sensible, additional sensible weather coming up. Warming will be uh, kind of halting for the first few days, but uh, we should be back well above freezing for much of next week, especially if we get later in the week. But back to this evening, uh, lake effect clouds to the east and south of Madison will continue to block the sky there, while additional high clouds will come in from the west over most other areas. Temperatures will drop to the low teens, maybe 10 in areas that stay clearer longer. Uh, Winds will be uh, generally light northerly, veering nominally northeast by morning. Tomorrow, in addition to the lake effect clouds to the east of Madison, high clouds will gradually thicken through the day. High temperatures will reach the lower mid-20s on strengthening strengthening east to northeast winds coming up to 8 8 to 12 miles per hour. Skies will thicken enough for light snow to begin sometime in the late afternoon or or early evening, and a steady light snow should then ensue until perhaps... Oh, midnight or the uh, wee hours of the morning with uh, maybe one to three inches coming down. Temperatures will drop to the mid-teens on backing northerly winds at five to ten miles per hour. Friday, the system clouds should scatter east and sky should be uh, mostly sunny, I think. We may see some regrowth of cumulus during the day. High temperatures will be in the mid-20s with uh, light winds backing more northwesterly. Skies will clear more overnight with a low temperature in the low teens on backing southwesterly winds at 3 to 7 miles per hour. Saturday should be mostly sunny with a high temperature reaching the mid-30s on southwesterly winds ramping up to 10 to 18 miles per hour in the afternoon. We'll stay fairly breezy and in the mid-20s overnight. We will have a passing cold front that night, fearing uh, winds northerly. That'll cool us for the day Sunday with a high just around 30 or so, but we will warm again as we go into next week. Down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 15 degrees. The dew point temperature is 4. Winds are out of the northeast at 5 miles per hour. Uh, Passing mid-level clouds up at about 15,000 feet, otherwise just some high cirrus up above that. Barometer is way up at 30.50 inches of mercury and fairly steady over the past few hours. And the time is now 6.47, and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. And we go now to February 1967, when the protest movement against the war in Vietnam takes a fateful turn. Stu Levitan has the details from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, February 1967 Dow 1, The Skirmish, Part 1 
A two-day action by Madison Students for Democratic Society against campus recruiting by the napalm-making Dow Chemical Company makes local history and creates the conditions for Madison's pivotal political event of the decade. On Tuesday morning, February 21st, about 150 students meet at Lincoln Terrace. SDS President Hank Haslick leads a group of about 40 to the chemistry building, and SDS Vice President Bob Zwicker and Bob Cohen take the rest to the Commerce Building. They've got placards of photos from Ramparts Magazine of Vietnamese children with horrifying napalm burns. They're going to use them to confront students interviewing with Dow about the work of their prospective employers. As designed by non-SDS member Cohen, the plan is to stand inside with signs aloft but not obstruct the interviews. Disrupt some minds, perhaps, but not university operations. But there's some confusion and a bit of university misinformation over whether the signs are allowed inside the buildings. Sergeant Brown of UW Protection and Security confronts Haslick, claiming the signs are dangerous. The men have a verbal confrontation that escalates until Brown puts Haslick up against the wall and under arrest for disorderly conduct. At about the same time, the same thing is happening at Commerce. Cohen is also arrested and forcibly removed. The first anti-war protesters arrested on campus, Haslick and Cohen are quickly released on bail, while the picketing and leafleting in each building continues. In Commerce, police try to arrest Zwicker when he won't put down his placard, but back off when he drops to the floor and is covered by a handful of other protesters. They all get up and continue picketing, with placards, Zwicker participating, until early afternoon, when they regroup and decide to hold an obstructive sit-in the next day. University Community Action Representative John Coatsworth considers the action counterproductive and tries to arrange a forum featuring all parties, but the Dow recruiters decline. Wednesday, February 22nd, is Madison's most momentous Washington's birthday since the first city hall opened on that holiday in 1858. It sees the first mass arrests on campus and a tense occupation of administrative offices, with administrators inside. The day starts with protesters marching to the engineering building, where UW Police Chief Ralph Hansen falsely claims that the Dow recruiters have left. The protesters march back up to Bascom Hall, where they sit in at several administrators' offices, including that of President Fred Harvey Harrington, who is not there. After almost an hour, about 20 members of the Committee for Direct Action slip out of Bascom and head back to engineering, where they force their way past engineering Professor James Marks and noisily occupy various offices and hallways. Although they don't actually prevent any Dow interviews, they are certainly disrupting normal office operations. Professor Marks, the liberal former Westside Alder who's in charge of the building, calls for campus police. At about 4.45 p.m., they arrest 11 protesters for sitting in, including Zwicker, Bortai Scudder, and Leah Zeldin, and six more who throw themselves under squad cars in a futile attempt to foil the arrests. When word of the arrests gets back to Bascom Hall, the sit-in becomes a blockade, as about 350 protesters block the hallways while Cohen and others engage Harrington, Chancellor Robin Fleming, and Dean Joseph Kaufman in the dean's office for close to three hours, 
the group demands that charges against the 17 be dropped and that Dow and the CIA be banned from campus before they'll let the two men leave. Fleming rejects all demands and warns that anyone who prevents him from leaving will face assault charges. None of the administrators feel as if they're held captive. They are choosing to stay and talk. But it's hot and smoky and increasingly tense as they go back and forth over the competing moral imperatives of peace, free speech, public responsibility, and individual choice, until someone accuses Fleming of duplicity and he walks out. The group agrees to take a break at 7.45 p.m. and meet again in the building's auditorium in about an hour. When they all get back together, Fleming announces that in the interval, he has written a personal check for $1,155 for bail for 11 of the arrestees. To Haslick's disgust, the 600 student protesters erupt in cheers. The 17 defendants, all represented by attorneys Percy Julian Jr. and Edward Ben Elson, all plead innocent and are set for trial. Fleming later tells Harrington he never got the bail money back. Thursday morning, anti-war protesters open a new front with the unveiling of the Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union through publication in the Daily Cardinal of a full-page We Won't Go ad. Haslick, Zwicker, Coatsworth, Stu Ewan, Jim Rowan, and John Cumbler are among the 47 signatories who declare their refusal to be conscripted and call on others to do likewise. It's a legally and academically risky thing to do and becomes a mark of distinction for those on the list. In one of the first signs of feminism in the predominantly sexist anti-war movement, another We Won't Go ad in May will include about 50 women, including Rowan's wife, Susan McGovern, daughter of Dove Senator George McGovern. Later on the morning of the 23rd, a group of about 60 conducts a peaceful, non-obstructive sit-in for several hours near the Dow interview room in Agriculture Hall. But the powers that be focus on the disruption instead. That afternoon, 833 faculty vote overwhelmingly to adopt a resolution reaffirming the Administrative Rule 11.02, adopted four months earlier after the disruptive heckling of Senator Edward Kennedy at the Stock Pavilion that students can protest and petition only, quote, by lawful means which do not disrupt the operations of university facilities. Fleming warns them before the vote that, quote, if we reach a showdown, the restoration of order cannot be accomplished without the importation of a substantial outside force. But he says he doubts very much that he will ever have to ask the governor to send the National Guard. But the action isn't over. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporters were Oliver DiPietro and Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection. 
Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan, Chuck Kademan spun the dials and mixed our sounds live on the air. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast, and Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay tuned next for a query that will be followed by This Way Out at 7.30, and we'll return to an overnight music station at 8 o'clock. And tune in tomorrow night at 6 for all of tomorrow's news as well. Until then, good night.